happens all the time. Right? You know, it's like, hey, get your shoes on, I'm gonna go get gas. Oh, I'm gonna get gas. I'm gonna get gas. You know, like, that's what you saw, right? Uh, it's like, I mean, nothing. It happens all the time. This is it. Uh, she likes to dance. The first time that we went to church, and there was a video, and there was music, and she started dancing in the aisle. We got very nervous. Okay, we, we didn't know genetically how we got a Pentecostal child, but we did. And she so was just doing her thing, you know? Like, there's just, there's always a moment for her to sing or to dance. The worst way is that the car um, as we were driving, she will spend 25 minutes singing about everything. We're in the car, and there's nothing donuts, and there's a gas station, and there's another nothing donuts, and there's another radio. Like, she just has to narrate the whole thing in song. <laughs> and it's kind of cute and just incredibly obnoxious to live with it all the time, you know? But she might think your life would be better with the soundtrack, it's not really. <laughs> and she does this, and it's just Cool that like she just thinks that that's appropriate in any moment. She's teaching her one year old like little sister to do it too. She sings "Let It Go" and the one year old only sing "Go." So it's, it's like a Beastie Boy. She just punctuates the last word and everything. Let it go, go, let it go. And it's funny because I think for many of us, singing has always been kind of relegated to a thing that little kids do. Like, it's cute that a four-year-old did it, but it's okay to doubt walking down the street and get everybody to see the problem. Right? Uh, a year or two ago, they put out a, a film version of the musical they did. And I saw a lot of complaints on Facebook. It'd be good if they weren't singing the whole time, right? <laughs> I mean, musicals have fallen out of hard times. In some ways, we've all sort of relegated singing to a certain part of our culture, or basically our kids. And it's normal for kids to sing, but grown-up people don't sing. Uh, this is particularly true here in the United States. We go to a sports game in Europe. They sing, right? Here, we just listen to the music playing on the program. It's really interesting that throughout history, people did sing. People would find moments where they were so excited that they just had to sing a song. Uh, what's really interesting is that in Scripture, we have this tradition, particularly of women as songwriters. There's four prominent examples, and if you want to do like homework reading this week, you're that kind of person. You should read uh, Exodus 15. Miriam sings a song after they've been saved from uh, crossing the Red Sea. She's sort of this first songstress uh, of the Bible. And then a few books later, Judges 5, Deborah has a great military battle, and Deborah sings a song where she uh, exalts God for what He's done. She actually does the like, really terribly rubs. The victory that Moses over had me is talking about how much the women in their village are crying because their husbands are dead. I mean, it's really interesting. But there's the song, number one, this great military battle. The third one is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, where Hannah is a barren woman that for years has had a rival wife that has mocked her. And finally, she has a child, and she sings this beautiful song about how God can change her life. And the fourth one is the one you probably know best. It's a song of Mary. Theologians call it the Magnificat. It's a song we hear a lot this time of year. It's, it's a core text for many people at Christmas because it's Mary just exploding in joy over what God has done in her life. Uh, I know we just read this, so I'm going to go ahead and read it again just to bring it fresh to our minds. Um, just listen to these words that come from Mary, maybe even echoes 
those other songs of Miriam and of Deborah and Hannah. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of the servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud of their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Now, this song is really interesting because. Of the circumstances and the expectations of men. A lot of times in our life, your circumstances and your expectations really affect how you feel, right? Some of you on Thursday morning when you opened your presents had high expectations. There was something on the list that you were supposed to get and it didn't show up. And you were a little annoyed, right? Because you had this high expectation of the skip and it didn't show up. There was others of you that were just figuring to get socks and underwear and something really cool game. And also, you were really excited, right? Like, okay, it's something this year. It's amazing how our expectations can change the moment. If it's our wedding day and we chip a nail, we cry. But if it's just a normal day and we find a nail, we're excited, okay? You know, what are we expecting? What do we get out of circumstances change? These are all things that affect us emotionally. And what I love about Mary's song is to take a little time to just think about what she was expecting and what her circumstances In many ways, Mary has um, high expectations, right? Sometimes in church, the way we'll say it is something like, um, Israel was waiting for the Messiah come to save Israel from her sins. And in some ways, it's a, it's a good way to talk about it. But in many ways, it says far too much, and it says far too little. On the two little side, um, I don't think we realize all of the things that a first century Jew I think so often, um, like we know about Jesus, and we're looking at our Christian rearview here, that we can't put ourselves in their shoes and understand what they were thinking about, what they were desiring. See, there's this little suite of ideas, this little cluster of ideas, um, that often we talk about as the restoration of Israel. And these ideas are really important for us to know, because particularly as you read Luke and Acts, Luke is obsessed with this stuff. And he brings it up over and over again, and he's trying to give you all these little keywords. And many of us just don't know These ideas, these things that Israel was expecting, these things that Israel was looking for, the restoration of Israel, was looked like this. You're about to hear, I guess, a great bold culture. One of the things they were looking for was for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. Throughout the prophets, they hear that when God brings change to our world, he will pour out his spirit in a way that he has never poured out before. And so there's great expectation that will all of a sudden experience the Holy Spirit we've been in before. There is hope for a new king. This is traditionally what we refer to as sort of messianic expectation. Messiah just means anointed one. It's a term for a king. If you read back the story of David, David's head is anointed with oil when he becomes king. And as such, the Messiah is the, the king like David. And so they were waiting for a king. They had this messianic expectation. But for them, it was probably much more earthly and militaristic and nationalistic they were waiting for a king. They were waiting for the spirit, they were waiting for the king. 
They were hoping for the reunification of the 12 tribes of Israel. You know the, uh, the history throughout the Hebrew scriptures. You had these 12 tribes, and over time, they slowly get sort of picked off one by one by foreign powers. And the 12 tribes, the descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob, all sort of dis disappear. We just don't know where they are. They uh, slowly get taken away. And so there's this hope that when God makes things right again, we will have 12 discernible tribes tribes again. That our nation will be reborn, sort of uh, organizational ways. There's the hope that Jerusalem will become a major capital of the world, and people will flock to the city of Jerusalem to look to, for knowledge and for wisdom and for hope. There's the hope that all nations, all the Gentiles, will come and worship God there at Jerusalem. That there will be this drawing of people across the world, to all worship the one true God. And when you put these things together, the Holy Spirit, the new king, the reunification of the twelve tribes, Jerusalem as the capital, nations worshiping in Jerusalem, those elements together form this tight bundle that is the hope of Israel. It is not just a hope of Messiah, it is a hope for all the things that have been destroyed by the Babylonians and the Assyrians, and years and years of chaos and destruction, that all of those things will be made right See, if you read the Hebrew scriptures as a first century Jew, they end in Malachi with no hope. Now these have been fixed. They're still unfinished. It's like a book where the author died before it was done. Because they had the hope of all these things happening, and they are sitting around just waiting for God to finally be true to those promises. When we read through the Book of Acts, you'll see that these are very important ideas that get developed. Um, just to give you an idea, um, see where some of this code comes in. You've got Luke 1 over before Mary's first call about having a child. The angel says, Do not be afraid, Mary, you are not faithful with God, you will conceive and convert to the Son, and you will become Jesus, and he will be great and called Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, that's the king we were talking about, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, which we'll try to turn, forever, and his kingdom will not end. And later on, Mary says, well, how will this happen? And the angel says, well, the Holy Spirit will come up upon me. Later, when Simeon sings a song, Simeon says that all of the Gentiles will now give glory to God. This little bundle of ideas packed in Luke 1 through 2. Um, and it continues on throughout the book. Uh, if you have never noticed the Lord's Supper story in Luke, Jesus has this phrase that's only in Luke where he says, and when I come to eat with you again, you will sit on the thrones of the twelve tribes of Israel. Again, it's a key word that we're trying to get us with about this bundle of ideas. And then you get to Acts 1 and 2, and he does it again. Acts 1 and 2 is again full of these things. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they speak so that every nation can understand what they say. And all the action happens at the temple. The one that really tells us is important is the story at the end of chapter 1. Sometimes if you've ever read through Acts, um, there's a story about how they the 12 apostles were replacement for Judas. And it feels like a really weird bureaucratic nonsense story. Like, we just had Jesus raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. And then on the other side of it, we have Pentecost, and we have the people speaking in tongues in the first gospel sermon. And in between, we're given, like, process and procedure on how to select the 12 apostles one more time. And you're like, why did you do that? That's a boring story. This is C-SPAN in, like, the middle of a great movie, right? <laughs> but he has a very important reason because there's got to be 12 of them. Because there will be the 12 tribes returned to the apostles and the fulfillment of that. And they can't do it if there's only 11 of them. And so the 
the story is there to keep you in. All that stuff you were hoping for is going to happen. And if Mary isn't paying any attention to the synagogue, she knows that she's waiting for these things. And so it was too little to say that Israel was just waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for a world change. But it's a, a bit too much, too. Uh, sometimes we talk about this and act like uh, they, they just knew exactly what was going to happen. Right? Uh, sometimes we do this, we're really bad about this in church. We think that uh, there was like a checklist, they made like bookmarks of all the prophecies that had to be fulfilled. And they just sat around the line, when a new Messiah came up, they were like, oh, we did that one, and we did that one. And then we got done with the checklist. They go, oh, he was the Messiah, and everything on the list. And that really doesn't happen. Because Peter and James and John and all the apostles, when Jesus is raised from the dead, go, I don't understand what this means. They weren't expecting that. On the road to Emmaus, when Jesus is walking with two of his disciples after his resurrection, there's this fascinating argument where they say, We thought he was the Messiah, but he died. He cannot be the Messiah. And Jesus looks at him and goes, No, the only way he could have been the Messiah is if he had died. See, they were expecting Messiah. They didn't know what it meant. They didn't know what it looked like. Uh, it's very clear that the early church was kind of confused. And it took them a good decade to sort of like sort this stuff out. Like on an apologetic note, someone says, Well, the problem with Christianity is that it was developed over time with theological thinkers. Of course it was. Everybody knows that. When Jesus died, he raised from the dead. Peter didn't come to the and go, Ah, everything's been fulfilled. I know exactly what's going on. He's confused. I don't miss this. It took a while to figure out what this stuff was. And so, like, uh, you know, we sing this song, Mary, did you know? I don't know what she knew or not. But the one thing she didn't know, she wasn't thinking about the crucifixion, okay? A first century Jew would have been said, well, I have the Messiah here, it's too bad to die on the cross Because they didn't think the Messiah was supposed to die on And so she has this whole mix-up in her head of expectations. All these things that she thinks are going to happen, she doesn't really totally understand. But in the midst of it all, there's this hope that God is going to restore Israel. But it's not just the expectations, it's the circumstances that she lives in. Um, we cannot forget that Mary is not supposed to be pregnant, okay? She's not supposed to be. Uh, ancient people, this is a thing people often say, they think ancient people are just stupid, they don't understand science. Uh, the birth of Esau was not invented in 1895, okay? This was something that people were aware of, Jesus' time of day. And when Mary comes, she goes, I'm pregnant, but it's, it's God's baby, and it's uh, an virgin still. Everybody tells him, yeah, I agree, you know? <laughs> like, this is not, people probably do not believe her. It's fascinating that the book of Matthew gives us the genealogy of Jesus. And there's like five or six women sprinkled in that genealogy, including Mary. And every last one of those women, except for Mary, or including Mary, are women involved in some sort of sexual scheme. This is the one that's not supposed to have a baby. I want you to think for a moment about her situation and her relationship. Mary and Joseph apparently are trying to be good Jewish uh, young people. They're waiting to have sex until they get married, right? Because this is God's desire and to experience sexuality in a committed relationship. Um, that's a weird thing to negotiate for the first time. It's even weirder when you're pregnant for the first time, right? Um, she cannot go to her aunt or her grandmother and talk about the pregnancy, then sex, like, transition. Right? Nobody has done that one before. There's no advice. There's no old wives' tales. You know, her mother 
every shower with your new feet, right? You know? I mean, this is just a bizarre circumstance. Think about their relationship. It's hard to get used to living with another person as husband and wife. It would be even harder if you had a baby plopped in the middle of it. Okay, that's one that some, some people do experience. Trying to get used to that relationship. Mary is trying to figure out what it is to be a wife and how to be with Joseph and how to exist as a family. Maybe this is a lot of to think about, it, like finances, you know, like how are we going to use our money? How are we going to afford enough food every week? And in the middle of this, now she has a baby. Freak us out, right? Maybe you had that experience of the pregnancy that you weren't expecting. And it scares people, it terrifies them. And honestly, if you're married, you might be a little annoyed. Well, what's that God? Why me? Why would you choose me? Uh, a good Christian scholar, John R. Hicks, uh, someone that I, I know in a way, wrote a good little blog post this week about marriage. They said Mary was on the lowest of the social ladder, engaged to a skilled laborer. She was young, poor, and a rural girl. Her station in life was at the bottom of the social ladder. She was not from the food neighborhood. She's, she was the child of the lower working class, the working poor. Mary was one of those we overlook. She was the person who empties our trash at work, the one who cleans our houses, the shy person, the waitress at Waffle House. But her devotion, humility, and piety is noted by God. This is a terrible circumstance to also have made. It's just terrible. And she's got all this theological stuff. She's seen angels. She's thinking about the restoration of Israel. She's thinking about Messiahs. She's thinking about all this other stuff. She's thinking about how this is going to affect my life. And in the midst of all of that, in the, the pot of that soil, the song that comes up begins the way it does. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. I just don't know if I sing that song in that situation. But what it does is bring us this experience that this Christmas season, this idea of God being with us, should overcome us with joy. And we look at a person like Mary in her situation in life, with her difficulties, with her circumstances, with this whole messed up head about what she's expecting this to mean or not mean. And when she responds with joy, the question is, what does it tell us about how we should live when we should respond to this? The first thing it tells us is that God is moving. Her song tells us that God acts, that he's working in our world. Life can change. We should never be dull in our way. Sometimes we make a mistake of thinking that the world is sort of set and that nothing else is going to happen. Right? Like that your, your life is a rut, that it's never going to go somewhere. Um, I've been guilty of this lately. I've been repenting publicly and I've told enough people now that you guys will get on me if you're not with me. Um, I'm guilty of trying to push. Oh, so yeah, maybe you guys are going to try to plant them here. You're going to plant church. Well, yeah, I'm trying. Oh, I guess you've got a good service by the way. Well, we can try to do something. And it's this little defeating thing of, well, you know, when there's a spaghetti against the wall, we should have opened a stick. But we don't want to do anything because the world doesn't change. There's never any hope things are going to get better. They're just kind of on a hamster wheel of torture, you know. Um, 
the murderer who puts a bittersweet sympathy in his life, try to earn some money and then die. Right? We can be that way sometimes. We can think that nothing's going to change, that nothing's going to move. We too often in the church have sort of this deism that inhabits our thinking. This idea that God sort of set up the world and God is sinning, and then he walked away. But for Mary, and in her song, she says, no, God is alive. And she goes forward to say, he does this, and he's done this, and he's done this, and he will do this. She has all these hopes for the way that God is going to act. That the world is not stuck in cement, that is free-flowing. We are not in a static situation, we are in a dynamic situation. And this is not just about having your head about in the future. It's about remembering and rehearsing God's tracker. Again, remember, Mary's song fits into this line of songs about these things that God did, these amazing things that God did. And Mary is echoing those other women that God is alive, God acts, and he moves, and he is not quiet, he is not silent, he is active. Do you ever rehearse the things that God has done in your life? Uh, this church sanctuary, this is evidence you live in a community where God has moved this did not exist five years ago. At all, right? The building did, this community? Not here. And God's done it because he moves. Things don't always have to be the same. You don't have to be stuck in some sort of rut. You don't have to think that life will never go somewhere. There's a Christmas hymn that we don't sing as often. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. And the strong, like, exclamation point of the song is God is not dead, nor does he sleep. Mary is convinced that God moves. And that changes everything. Part of the reason we have joy is because God is moving and he's active. But to go to a second point, not that God moving, but he's moving towards a positive conclusion. I have to be careful. I don't want to say that pessimism is against the Bible, but it may be, okay? At the very least, what we know is that history is not cyclical. Uh, many religions teach us that everything just happens over and over again. That we're just sort of one giant, you know, trier step. And what the Bible says is no, history goes from one place to another place. There is creation, there is fall, and there is redemption. And it is all steadily and surely going somewhere, which is the restoration of all And history doesn't move in circles, it moves in line. And that gives you hope. It gives you excitement that we're going somewhere, that we're moving somewhere. Mary believes that this child in her will initiate great change, and that it will be a good thing that the oppressors, that those that mistreat other people, the rich and the haughty, they will be overthrown and turned over by this man, this, ch this child that she bears. That this child will drive the world for something new and new. Uh, and you see again, this is within the line of all those women that sang before. Miriam rejoiced because Pharaoh's arrogance was destroyed. Deborah rejoiced because the oppression of their overlords was smashed. Hannah rejoiced because the taunts and the barrenness were over. That God not only acted, but he acted in a positive way. That he was trying to move towards something. We're living in a day and time where we mourn injustice a lot. Right? It's kind of weird. Because for most of us, we grew up seeing news footage of the 60s and people marching and all that kind of stuff. And did you ever, I don't know, fellow millennials, did you ever sort of feel like we got kind of skipped on that stuff? You know, like, oh, we're all kind of got things before we got here. So we're just going to sit around with the Right? Like, I, I, I didn't feel it before that thought, you know? Like, you know, you see Mark Luther King doing his thing, and you're like, man, it would have been cool to be around that. 
And then all of a sudden last month we got this explosion of people taking to the streets and saying, I'm not from justice. And whether you're excited about that or not, or whatever news channel you watch, we cannot deny the fact that we live in a culture now that is just desiring injustice in our world. It's hungry for us, thirsty for this tired of seeing people die that don't need to die. And Mary's song is filled with this idea of justice. That this world as it is now is not good enough, and it's going to go somewhere better. That the things that we see, the hunger, the poverty, the death, the war, the famine, that that stuff cannot stay. And then it will be better. And then we're moving towards that. It's a view of life that sort of allows you not to be a sinner. God's movement nullifies this idea that we're in a rut, or that we should be stagnant. But the fact that it's a positive movement also nullifies the idea that we should be pessimistic or sinner. Hope should not dilute the joy of what God has already done. You know, sometimes this happens, right? It's like, how do you like, well, who's going to know who Jesus is? Right? Like, salvation in heaven, like, heaven is this beautiful carrot that's, like, hanging over us and makes us get out of bed every morning. And somehow the beauty of what God is going to do when all things are set right is so great that it means today's terrible. But Mary does not do that. Mary rehearses the beautiful things that God has done. And then we're on a trajectory, we're on a moving world. Things are better today than they used to be in many ways. And then someday they will all be better even more. Mary has a long way to go before things are over. Okay, she has a pregnancy to go, she has to give birth. Remember, that's a scary thing in the ancient world. A lot of women die having babies. So she's got to go through pregnancy, she's got to go through the delivery, she then has to raise this guy, right? Mary is at least 34 years away from any sort of resolution, and that resolution is her son died on us. And her response is joy, because she knows where God is going. And that's just kind of the final point here. It's full of joy in all of this. God is moving, he's moving in a positive way, and that means we should be joyful. Do you ever get excited about anything? There's, there's something so good, some of you do. Well, that looks a little bit, some of you never get excited about anything. Right? Are there some of us that are always waiting for the other shoes to drop? Honey, we're pregnant. The first thought in my mind is, I'm going to pay for the hospital bills. How am I going to pay for college? I'm not going to be that. I'm not going to be that. You know, like, there's some of us that you're great news for me. Congratulations, you won the price is right. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and it's hard. Joy isn't about false emotion, okay? Honestly, prepping for this yesterday, I had to take a whole day yesterday. And I'm like, I'm going to preach on joy tomorrow. It's the most important thing I've ever done in my life. It's not like it's always easy. And it's not about false emotion. It's not about sort of stirring yourself up to be excited about something. It's also not about sort of Pollyanna thinking, oh, everything will be a bit right eventually. What joy is about is about never losing the ball. It's about not allowing the tree to obscure the force. It's about having a big vision of life. Um, otherwise, what happens is we just become really bitter at living. Um, is it possible 
that sometimes we allow a moment of disappointment to cloud a lifetime of blessing? Here's a real question I have for you. Are you waiting for your life to be good, or are you waiting for your life to be perfect? I do this. I get the end of the day, it's a great day, and I'm like, if only this happened, it would be perfect. Right? You know, like, uh, you're maybe a big holiday, or like a big wedding or something. I remember I had a preacher that told me, always oh, the couple's getting married, that something will go wrong. And that, that something that goes wrong is the story that they will tell their grandchildren. So that when that thing goes wrong, you'll go, here we go. This is it. It's the wrong thing. It's the thing we'll talk about for the rest of our lives. Um, and it's just this great view because otherwise, I mean, at least maybe it's just me, we're just so obsessive and, and you just want complete happiness. You just want everything so perfect that everything you go right in your day, that one thing goes wrong, and you're the dumbest of that thing. And Mary says, no, there is a bigger story. I have a story that goes back to the day that the Red Sea was parted. And Miriam said for joy because Marshall Ryder had been thrown into the ocean. And for centuries and centuries and centuries, God has been moving, God has been acting. And he has gone and pushed us towards a beautiful place that is going to be even better yet. And because of that, I will have joy. I will not allow the fact that my back hurts or have a baby in nine months or whatever. The fact that every town is making fun of me. To steal my joy. Because there is a fuller, greater, more beautiful thing happening. And I cannot be obsessed with every little detail that makes me want to be depressed. God's movement tells us that we cannot be stuck in a rut, that we cannot think the world's going nowhere. The way that he moves positively does not be cynical, pessimistic. And all of that brings a joy that refuses to allow us to become bitter and angry over every little thing that because if we do that, our lives are just going to get destroyed. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're talking about virgin birth and your like, science meter is going off, right? Okay? Take home this message from Eric. Whatever is happening in your life, if you choose to roll in the bad, difficult circumstances and expectations, your life will be sorry and bitter and angry. But the way of Christ is a way of hope, it's a way of joy. It's about looking beyond the momentary sadness, the momentary difficulties, to the big picture of everything God wants to do in the world. Because that is big and it is huge in His purpose. Christmas time is about having joy that God is with us. I have a couple questions for you guys. Coming close to the end here. Uh, if you're not a good response person, I'm sorry. You know. Just give me a yes or a no. I've been around here enough that I think I know the answer to some of these. Here in Sanctuary, have you seen broken relationships heal? Yes. Have you seen God give His church for worship and for art and for outreach and for service? Yes. We're going to try to get around the church. Just keep up with it. <laughs> have you experienced good homes and food and friends and family and just warm embraced by your church family? Yes. Have you seen addictions kicked and illnesses defeated? Have you seen orphans fed and home and given homes and loved and adopted? Yes. 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 Are you the Okay. (laughs) Have you seen a church planted? 
Have you seen lives changed, hearts transformed, some confess that Jesus is Lord, and souls go down to the watery grave of baptism to come up into the newness of life? Yes. God has moved here. Amen? Amen. And we should have joy. Whatever the circumstances, whatever the expectations, we join in Mary's song because we are part of that lineage of faith that goes all the way back to all of those songs. And we have joy because our God is moving in things of the Son. Today, as we celebrate Christmas, we think about God moving in our world. We feel joy because He is with us 